Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more information about how to run a scientific podcast, visit azonetwork.com slash podcasts. And our guest today is Laura Haldane, who is a psychology graduate turned director of Scileads, her very own company, as well as being a board member of the SAMPS Network, that's Sales and Marketing Professionals of Science. She also holds the privileged position of being our first podcast guest, who has also served as an extra on HBO's Game of Thrones. Join us as we discuss the psychology behind email marketing and what it takes to sell and market to scientists. Brilliant. So welcome today, Laura. First and foremost, can you tell us what it was like to be on set at the Game of Thrones? Was it the Battle of Winterfell you were part of? Yeah, so I was down in the crypts as part of the refugees. So women and refugees were down there. If you remember, it was the third episode of the final season. And it kind of was awesome because we filmed it two years before the actual thing aired, which was good because you got a bit of insight, but it was bad because I had to wait two years to see if I could see myself, which is like the whole point of being an extra in there. Even though it only translates to like five, well, not five minutes, but a bit more than five minutes, we filmed for an entire week. It was great. It was a great experience. You get to see all the actors. You get to really be in the thick of it. Fascinating. So uh, do you want to tell us a bit about your background at SAMPS and, and how you've built up Leads over the years? So my background, I originally did psychology in university with a view to go into sales. And my first job out of university was in the life sciences, so selling reagents and working for an IVD company. And that's really what got me into that sort of scientific sales. I then moved on and sold cameras. And the beauty about selling cameras is they go on to microscopes, they go on to spectrographs, they go on to telescopes. So that got me a real nice breadth of the market from material research to life sciences. After that, I did NGS and it wasn't really NGS equipment, but it was helping with the software with the very computationally intensive algorithms and helping processors. It was actually a data science company. So that was also what got me into data and machine learning and that sort of thing. So then two of my friends and myself set up Silades and it was sort of an amalgamation of all of that. It was the desire to find leads because we were sales and marketing throughout our career selling into scientists. So how to find that lead using open data sources that are out there and how to use those sort of data science techniques that we had picked up in order to create a, a single platform that has all of that data, which is where Leads came from. Excellent. And yeah, just tell us a little bit about SAMPS. So SAMPS is an organization that was created in order to help people selling into scientists, help their career, help them network. It used to be called ACPLS, so it was Commercial Professionals in Life Science. And then we realized that actually the sort of techniques and the problems that life scientists were having selling into scientists were the same as if you sell into material research as well. So we sort of rebranded it so that it would be more inclusive. So it's SAMP Sales and Marketing Professionals in Science. In normal life, we have two meetups a year, one in Europe, one in the US, where we gather everyone together. We have talks about, you know, what tools are in vogue, how you do approach selling into to scientists. At the minute, it's more webinar remote, as you can can imagine, just to keep that content coming up. You know, what should we do now in the COVID era? How has it impacted, you know, selling into scientists and that sort of thing? 
I'm actually joining, I'm guest speaking on one of your webinars on March the 3rd. It's about podcasts, video and general content creation. So looking forward to that one. Brilliant, yeah. How, how would you say that selling to scientists differs from selling in normal sort of B2C or normal day life? So, I mean, scientists have sort of two traits. So they're naturally curious, but they're really skeptical as well. So basically, when you're selling to scientists, you have to have a lot of data and make sure that it's right. You know, that it doesn't matter about some of the marketing techniques you might get away with. You need to have data. You need to have graphs. They also will want to look at it themselves. So having referrals and having referrals from their peers that they can speak to will be really important as well. What are the main challenges that sales and marketing professionals, particularly within the science and engineering, healthcare, life sciences industries, what, what do they face today? So there was already this trend that we used to go into, you know, an academic lab or we just knocked on the door and we'd walk the corridors. And even in my time, that's what I used to do when I started off. And that started to get less and less. So you needed to really know who you were going to see and, and target them beforehand. And obviously, COVID just accelerated this trend of not doing these in-person meetings. So we've all had to migrate more towards the digital. Even people that have been selling for, you know, 40 years that maybe were adverse to that. 10 years ago now they're having to really embrace this digital approach of you know connecting through email or multimedia social media covid has been interesting because there's been a lot more emails going about so obviously we work with a lot of clients and this is what they're trying to do you know target the customer and they're really finding that there's a lot of noise at the minute in terms of email so to really get above that noise you have to do something different you have to be more targeted you have to do more interesting things hence the podcasts and that's what we know we're going to talk about in samps how to put those together because it isn't what people used to do it's just it's a new thing that people have to do more of now to just rise above that noise so you mentioned before that you're originally a psychology graduate. How does that then play into your particular method of, as to how you, you approach email marketing? When it comes to applying psychology to email marketing to life sciences, it's not always intuitive. And that's why I loved looking at the experiments and looking at the data. So a big debate that I have with so many companies is what your email looks like. So if you do a poll of which email will work better, the majority of people will choose the ones with HTML images in them. But if you do A-B testing, then what you find is the more images you put in, the less the click-through rate is. It just gets worse over time. And my problem is that I'll say this should be much more simple. It should just be in plain text. And they'll stand up in the office and they'll say, you know, guys, what do you think? And of course, your colleagues will all say the HTML one. But in practice, actually, it's the one without the HTML that will give you more click through. So that's why I love looking at this sort of research and experimentation because it's not intuitive. And I mean, there's other examples. There was a girl calling. She was in that sort of, you know, QVC online shopping market. And she was in charge of the sales there. Do you know at the bottom it says our operators are waiting to hear from you? So she like smashed the sales targets, 20 year sales targets, smashed them by changing that our operators are waiting for you to write if our operators are busy, please call back. That makes no sense. That means that it's harder to, to buy your product. You would think intuitively that would make no sense, but you sort of just need to think about what image that conveys. So our operators are waiting. They're just sort of sitting around waiting for you. Whereas please call back. It shows that other people are doing it. So creating the FOMO seems like the, the QVC example you give there. 
Like if you say our operators are busy, please call back. People think there must be some value here. I want to get in on this. On that, I know the decision paralysis is a big thing where you're looking for them to take an action. Say you give someone, I don't know, 20 types of chili jam to choose from. People buy less than if there's only three types to choose from. And it's the same with your calls to action in emails. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I think you were were talking about trying to get them to agree to a time or a meeting or something. So when I tell my clients, you need to make it out like everyone else is doing it, trying to get that FOMO across, as you say, I say, you know, you should make yourselves into a scarce resource, if you will. So say, you know, I've only got these time slots available, i.e. everyone else is meeting with me. And then what I've seen is they put in their email, you know, here are the time slots I have available. And there's just far too many of them. So not only are you not making yourself a scarce resource, but you're also paralyzing people with choice. And as you rightly say, the studies have shown the more choice you give people, the less like they are to make any decision at all. Head and Shoulders was a great example of this. The CEO came in and they took away a lot of the choice. So they went from 26 down to 15 types of shampoo and their sales went up by 10%. And I mean, Steve Jobs is the king of this, isn't he? You know, he when he came into Apple, forget about all the different types. You get a computer, you get a phone. It's a wee bit more varied now, but that was his approach. You know, forget about the choices. And all of these can be applied to life as well. Don't give your kids three options for dinner if you want them to make any decision at all. Just make it simple and, and they'll do it. So have you got any thoughts on the length of your typical email or, or how much of it should be above the fold? Uh, this is just a conversation that I have every day with clients. They'll say, you know, have a look at this, isn't this lovely email? And I'll look at it. And yeah, it is. But take half of that away. I mean, it's a trend generally that's happening. Look at sort of these TikTok videos and these short clips. Everyone has less attention to spend on anything. And especially when they're getting more emails. So we find the shorter, the snappier, the more personalized, the better take away your images. The HTML doesn't show up in most cases anyway, particularly when you're selling into academia because it's all blocked. Write a personal message and keep it short and keep it sweet. These people are busy. So unless someone's asked you for more information, I wouldn't go above the fold ever. And keep in mind as well that they're looking at it very often on their phones. So your fold is a lot higher than you would maybe anticipate if you're looking at normal screens. Yeah, I think the way that we're consuming information has evolved so rapidly. You ask anyone who's under the age of 20 and... I coach a rugby team and the way they communicate, it's a Colts rugby team that like 16, 17. Well, first and foremost, we're not allowed to WhatsApp them. We can't message them directly. You basically tell one of them and then he tells the rest of them via Snapchat. Okay. And then they all sort of like send pictures of themselves nodding to acknowledge a message. Those wee short audio clips as well, which like torture me because you have to actually sit and listen to them. But that's what all my younger cousins, I write them a message and I get this audio clip back because they can't even be bothered to type anymore because that's old school. It's a quick audio clips and send so i i often find it like it's it's akin to writing a tweet like you've got 155 characters or however many it is to write a tweet that's a real exercise in concision and just making sure something's on the point i find that i've got to put my twitter hat on whenever I'm, I'm composing an email i think right how can i write this in as few characters as possible down to the hyperlinking of the bits of text like it needs to be descriptive so that people when they click on it they know exactly what they're getting and they're not going to be disappointed when they do get it so it's apart from that it's respecting people respecting their time and might only be five seconds here five seconds there but that makes a difference in today's day and age when five seconds is actually quite a long time people don't stick around for five seconds if something doesn't load 
nowadays the kids will be used to that you know with their snapchats and things but actually back in the day when a text message cost 10p did your text message you went up and took out as much as you possibly could to get it condensed so it's the same sort of skill set there that you want to get it yeah into as small a message as you possibly can what about the sort of language specifically that you're using within an email how do you tailor your, the language you use so in sales you know everyone knows about the yes triangle if people say yes they're more likely to continue saying yes because your brain is primed to say yes so people have got this wrong, like the AA, the sales guys there used to say to you, you know, when they stood in the supermarket, they would say, are you a member of the AA? And you would say no. And so their target demographic, the people they're after, were starting with a no. So the AA have now changed it to say, do you drive a car? Which most people do. So now they're starting on the S. So it's really important, the language. Another really important word is because. So they did this experiment where they had people queuing for a photocopying machine and they asked people, can I cut to the front of the line? And 68% of the time people said, okay. And then they added a new language. So can I cut to the line because I'm in a rush? And 94% of people said, okay. But the most interesting thing about this is the because bit actually doesn't matter. So they changed it again to say, can I cut to the line because I need to make copies, which doesn't add anything. And 93% of people said, okay. So it was almost the same as your legitimate reason. It was just the fact that you said because made people more likely to actually do something. So I love things like that because, again, you wouldn't necessarily know that, but you can put them into your emails. You mentioned scarce resources as, as well. People make mistakes. So they did a thing in Arizona. There was petrified wood and people were nicking them. They were stealing them. So they put up a sign to say people are stealing the stones and, you know, stop stealing the stones. And the theft of the stones went up by 8% because you just told everyone that everyone else is doing it and they're running out. And I see this in like sales management, you know, they'd send you an email and say like, you know, only two of you sent through your pipeline this week. So everyone will look at that and go, well, I'm okay then. So you mentioned managing a sales team there. If you were managing that sales team, how would you encourage everyone to get their forecasts in on time? There are a few of you still haven't sent through or a number of you, if you don't want to lie, a number of you haven't sent through your pipeline yet. And then people will be like, oh, I need to get this in. Just waiting for the final few forecasts. Yeah, exactly. And the other interesting thing about managing a sales team is people like to regress to the mean. So there's like a magnetic middle. They did a survey on like energy consumption and they sent emails out to say, you know, your household is 10% more or your household is 10% less than the average. And obviously the ones that were 10% more cut down their, their usage. So it, it worked. But what was interesting is the ones that were 10% less, they increased theirs. So they were like, oh, right, well, then I should be using more. And they ended up all meeting in the middle. So a way to counteract that is they sent out the same letters and they put a smiley face to be like, well done. And that kept them still low. Again, that's worth applying to sales teams. I mean, commission probably does that inherently. But, you know, so-and-so is selling so much more. Well done. Keep it up just to make sure that they don't drop down while you're trying to get the, the lower ones up. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned just before about, well, obviously, email is a very powerful tool. How are you using LinkedIn in terms of prospecting and, and reaching decision makers? Do, do you have any pearls of wisdom you can share there? Have you tried v video messaging at all yet? So I haven't, I probably should. I know that inherently it works better. And I know that the people that have sent it to me, I've actually received quite a few video CVs in the last few months, which is new. And I guess 
again, that's trying to cut above the noise. Obviously, unemployment rates have gone up with COVID situation. So they're just trying to get their head above and it does work. In terms of LinkedIn, personalization, and I mean, it, it applies for everything is really the key here. For me, from a scientific point of view, all of the, the data is out there. So you've got like NIH reporter, you know, in Europe, you know, MRC, Cancer Research UK, they publish all of the grants. You can go on to PubMed, you can find this information. I mean, it's what SciDates does bringing it together, but it's all out there if anyone wants to find it. So taking the time to find that extra information to then personalize your email will get you a much better response. So and LinkedIn as well, putting interesting things in your profile. So like I have it on that I did Game of Thrones. It was actually a Samps talk. A girl gave a talk about how to structure your LinkedIn. And she was saying that basically when the bust happened, you know, years ago, people lost a bit of trust in companies you know that phrase you know you you buy from a person not from a company so your linkedin is like a window into your world so if your linkedin reads like a resume you're not using it right well unless you're trying to find a job if you're trying to sell to people it should be a lot more personal it should be a lot more interesting you know i don't really care that much about your work experience but if you've got two dogs or you know her example was she'd stuck in that she was an excellent parallel parker and like that's what everyone messaged when she connected with them about pile of parking. So I was trying to think about what I had done. So that's why I put in the Game of Thrones thing to say Game of Thrones extra. And it you just get a lot more connections. People are much more likely. It's even an icebreaker to actually respond to you. So um, a question I wanted to ask you was about the, the skill set of modern sales professionals working within science. How has that changed over the last, well, pick how long, but 20 years, 30 years, or even 40 years? What do you now hire for, or what would you recommend companies that are selling to scientists, what do you recommend they hire for? So in terms of what's happened in my career, which is the last sort of 15 years, I find that it used to be that it would be salespeople that you would try and teach the science to, whereas now it's scientists that you're teaching the sales technique to scientists they just rather speak to a scientist and if they're not you know doing the polished textbook sales stuff actually that's probably better than if if you get a sort of sales guy in that's taking them through the normal process so i would say that that's been a a big shift in, in what's happened recently as i say in terms of using you know the digital space learning where these data is in order to reach out to people is another sort of aspect during covid times we're all doing these remote sessions. So they can kind of all blend into one as well. So you really need people that you'll remember them. So they're a wee bit different. So people that have the ability to be, I won't say unprofessional, but maybe just show the the human side. There's been a really nice trend, in my opinion, of people's dogs, people's cats walking by, people's kids coming in to ask, you know, where their lunch is. That would have probably been seen to be quite unprofessional even this time last year. Whereas now it's sort of like, oh, well, we're, we're all in the same boat. We're all human. And I've really loved that sort of shift in terms of sales. You don't need to be the stiff sales person. You're just sort of chatting to them, telling them what the product's like. Yeah, I, I must add at this point, it was when we were having our first conversation and, and the dogs were in the background and then I just heard your new baby girl just like <laughs> crying and, and you, you, you you leant down to one side and picked her up and it was the first, it was the first infant I'd ever had on a, on a Zoom call. So. She's a Zoom, a Zoom baby. Excellent. So you, well, you mentioned the difference between sort of like the old school sales approach and the sort of more about teaching scientists. So how important is it now, given the level of complexity and the products and services that we see on offer, that you do have that technical knowledge as opposed to the sort of more traditional, just straight up sales? 
when you're sound scientists, it's massively important. And as I said, they don't really care if someone isn't polished. I, I remember having to tell people whenever we went into labs, stop wearing a suit because it just doesn't make sense for you to go in in a suit and then the lab tech sitting there in his flip-flops and his shorts just being like, what are you, what are you doing? So having someone that can talk about the technology, that's you know what they want to hear. So it's massively important and not even trying to pretend, you know, to be able to say, look, I don't know that answer. Here's a few spec sheets and I'll get my application specialist on. So that sort of hyper speciality, we're really narrowing down. And again, it comes back to that personalization of emails. Everything's going really hyper specialized and that's what people respond to best. Yeah. And do you think that from a psychological standpoint, that has a, an impact as well? If a suit walks in versus if a, a scientist walks in who can naturally go and talk shop with you about the detail and the intricacies of, of your, your product or technology or all the problems that you're trying to solve? Absolutely. So, I mean, everyone wants to listen to someone that's like them. You know, people recycling tiles in the hotel. Yep. So you get a wee card that says save the environment. Someone changed that to say the majority of people in this hotel recycle their tiles. And it went up by like 26%. And then they did it again and said the majority of people that stay in this room recycle their toss. And that makes no sense. Like you don't care who was in your room. If anything, you don't like them because they like dirtied something in the room. But it went up 33% because it was someone like you. So for it to be a scientist speaking to you that would use that product and even better if you, you know them and you know their connections, then that's really, really powerful to, to sell the product. Yeah. So empathy is a huge thing. I find that the best salespeople are often the people who have already done that job that are being sold to because they know all the problems and the challenges that you have on a day-to-day -day basis. So so they know how to make things quicker, make things faster, more efficient, more effective, etc. Yeah. We do have a thing in, in SAMPs every year. Again, when we have our normal conferences, we have an Ask the Customer panel. So we have like a material researcher, a life science guy, a core facility manager, maybe a biotech guy. And it's just an open panel and the room asks them, do you care about if your sales guy lives locally or could he do it on the phone? You know, how much do you value referrals? How would you like to speak to a referral? And it's really, really interesting because you just get to ask these open questions about how they like to be sold to. And the conclusion every year tends to be very similar. Put me in a room with someone who's used your product before. If it's a small product, let me use it for one. But if it's a large product, you know, a hundred thousand pound, you know, laser system, then put me in a room with someone who already has one and give us a wee lunch spread and close the door and go away and let us speak. And that's always the, the bottom line, the takeaway at the end of those panel sessions. Cool. All right. A couple of questions before we wrap things up. And this one's more about running a business and being an entrepreneur. So what do you find are the biggest challenges as, of running your own business? So for me, it's that things change a lot. So there used to be three of us and we kind of got into the groove of that. We knew exactly how to grow the business and we just worked really hard and worked really hard. And now there are 30 of us and the business has changed massively. So I guess it's changing with us. You know, we still have this bootstrap mindset sometimes where we're like, oh, you know, we should save some money there. And then we're like, oh no, we don't need to anymore. But it's trying to change your mindset then that you're no longer this tiny startup and you're a bigger company. 
another big challenge that we have is particularly in in Ireland and I think it's the same across the world is finding software developers at the minute is really difficult they're just so in demand we created the company remote first so we're big philosophers of you should enjoy your work it should fit around with your life you can have a baby and you know do your work when she's asleep and that was actually a really good way to recruit as well because people really bought into that philosophy particular software devs you know I don't care if you do your coding at 2am if that's when you like to do it we don't get a lot an awful lot of sunshine here in Ireland if it's a sunny day you should probably go out into it because you're not going to get one for another while and then actually now that everyone's working remotely it's sort of changed that dynamic a bit because everyone is and um, but we were able to actually cope a lot better because we were remote first anyway and um, but that's that's one of the challenges that we're finding and just recruiting yeah i think that's a common challenge throughout the rest of the world i think lots of the big guys hoover up all the the talent for software developers and you've got you've got to really work hard to to attract and retain the right people for you for your organization yeah so just to, to wrap things up now, how do you see the future of selling and marketing to scientists? What, what do you see the industry looking like in, say, five years' time? So a lot of our, particularly our larger clients, are going more hardcore down this sort of data, data science route. And I, I don't think we're ever going to lose the salespeople and that we're going to be out of a job. You know, I've, I've looked at tools like Conversica and those sort of AI bots that will do like automatic follow-up and maybe they'll get better. But for now, I just don't think we're quite there where they can replace that human contact and that level of personalization that's really required to get a response, particularly in an email. But, you know, some of our clients are doing really sophisticated things with marketing automation, sending the email. If someone gets a grant automatically popping that email out, tracking them then thereafter, you know, if they click or download a white paper, then they get assigned a score. Once that score gets above a certain amount, pass up to the sales team, you know, that sort of automatic process is getting more and more. And even our smaller clients are, are putting that in place. And then as well, running data analytics. So you probably know who your customer is. You can just, you sort of feel it. It's a bit anecdotal but being able to put it into your machine and say here are our customers tell me who I should be selling to tell me who looks like this is really the future because as humans we're not great actually at following patterns and the computer will be able to say actually you know you do sell much better into this market or send your emails at two o'clock because you get a better response so that's where we're seeing the trends and as part of that I keep going on about the personalization but the more targeted you can be the more likely you are to get a response particularly in this day and age with so many emails flying about Mm -hmm. it's quite hard to truly mimic that authenticity and sincerity i'm starting to become wise to it and you can see when people are just sort of sending you on an email track or a sales enablement pathway and again because it's scientists we're selling to they're going to pick up something like that probably quicker as well than than another consumer so yeah being careful that you don't just do those sort of repetitive emails and you're actually adding value every time you you send the email is is important yeah something that's hyper personalized like you say and really really relevant to what they're doing right now i think that's the the best way to do it and, and really hook them and grab their attention yeah excellent so thank you very much for coming uh, well for speaking with me today laura it's been a pleasure you do. thanks A big thank you to Laura there, a fascinating insight into psychology of email marketing. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. And we'll be back again next time with more fascinating insights from the Marketing Science Podcast. Podcast.